1: Bayonet Point, WTBN Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries.
2: By informing us that Noah was a preacher of Righteous Wise Peter doing this to I think he intends to just encourage us to be faithful to keep telling others about the Lord and living out the light, even if nobody else responds. Be faithful.
1: Do you know how Listerine got its name? Well, I don't know all the details, but up until the late 1800s, all doctors knew that there was no reason to wash their hands as they moved from patient to patient. Until Joseph Lister finally introduced antiseptic surgery, those doctors who could see that unwashed hands were killing patients were universally ignored. The Old Testament prophets knew how that felt, and perhaps you do too, if you're staying faithful to Christ in the midst of this wicked generation in which we now live. We are in the minority. Today on Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve Kreloff will continue teaching from 2 Peter Chapter 2. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Peter wrote about the judgment that came upon the whole earth in Noah's day because of the wickedness of the population there is another worldwide judgment headed our way. Let's find out how we can escape it. Keep your finger there in 2 Peter 2, but let's begin in Genesis chapter 6.
2: And notice how bad it got. Chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry, that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I have made them. And then just jump down to verses 11 through 13. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of, of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, and the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Now, this was the moral climate of this world, of the world of Noah's day. Violence, think about that, violence and no restraint upon it. No restraint on sin, everyone doing what they wanted. The Bible says the thoughts of of their hearts were continually evil, continually it was sin unchecked. It was a world God man with, with, mad with sin. No justice, no compassion, no integrity. Imagine living in a world in which there are no believers, but just one family. No believers in the world out of billions, let's say, of people. And that was the ancient world. The ancient world of billions that Peter said God decided not to spare. A whole planet was wiped out. What does this tell us about God? It tells us that he's never going to let anyone get away with sin. Never going to let anyone get away with sin. See, I think there's a tendency to think that the more people who participate and condone sin, the safer it is. I mean, that's where our society is. It's sort of, this is the popular popular thing to do. This is the, in fact, somebody just said to me recently, uh, we were discussing uh, an issue of the Bible, and this is a person who doesn't believe in the Lord and isn't interested at all. But this person said to me when I brought up a moral standard, they said, how long ago was the Bible written? And what they were really saying is this, look, it's, it's an ancient book. It's, it's archaic. Nobody holds to that anymore. It's, it, you're out of step with the times. You know what? We are out of step with the times, but God's standards never change. Uh, there is no safety in numbers, but that's what people think. By not sparing the ancient world, God reveals that vast numbers will never shelter anyone from experiencing God's wrath. There's no comfort in, in numbers. It also tells us that the false teachers of, of Peter's day and, and people who rebel against the Lord today cannot hide behind the many followers who they think would protect them from God's judgment. Judgment is unavoidable unless we turn to Christ. Popularity will never negate God's coming judgment. So that's the first lesson. That Peter tells us from the judgment of the flood said, if the ancient world wasn't spared from judgment, then neither will anyone today be spared from judgment. God didn't say, oh, it's so many people. I don't think I could do this to everybody. God wiped out everybody. And his heart was grieved. The Bible says, by the way, that God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. We ought not to think of God as as making just an arbitrary decision like that. And it means nothing to him. God was genuinely grieved. He never delights in the death of the wicked but he will never violate his justice. Now there's a second lesson from the judgment of the flood. And it's this, if God spared Noah and his family, then he will also spare everyone who trusts him. To go back to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse five, notice how Peter words this. He writes, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others. Peter informs us of a fact, a well-known fact, to those who are familiar with the book of Genesis, that God spared Noah and his family from the judgment of the flood. But actually, Peter tells us something that Genesis never directly tells us. He tells us that, that uh, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Now, if you look closely at, at Genesis chapter six, you'll find that uh, Noah had godly character. Let's go back to Genesis six. Noah's character was really wonderful. And especially in contrast to the wickedness of his day. Notice verse nine of chapter six. These are the records of the generations of Noah. So now, by the way, in the structure of the book, he's moved from Adam's descendants, Seth, to Noah's descendants. See, that's just how the book breaks down. But notice verse nine, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. And we learned three things about Noah from this, this one verse. Number one, he was in a right relationship with God, which means we would say in our day and age that he was saved. He had come to faith in the Lord. He was a saved man. Now, you may wonder, well, how could someone be saved back then? They didn't know about Jesus. True, they didn't know all the facts about Jesus. They didn't know the details about Christ's future death for them, but they were given a number of promises of a coming deliverer, one who would deal with their sin, one who would save them from sin, and Noah believed that. We look back at the cross and we understand that Christ died for our sins and we trust his death alone for our eternal salvation, but Noah and Old Testament believers looked ahead to the promises of God without knowing how God would would do this in in all its details, they understood that God would provide a deliverer who would save them from their sin. And Noah was saved. We're not given the details about that, but he was in a right relationship with God. He was also, we're told, blameless, which means what? He certainly wasn't sinless. That's not what blameless means, but it just means he had a consistent testimony before his peers. They knew him to be a man consistent with what he claimed to believe. Now, they didn't believe it, and they probably mocked him and ridiculed him, but they at least respected him because he had a testimony that was consistent. We're also told that he walked with God, which simply means that he experienced rich fellowship, dynamic fellowship with the Lord on a regular basis. He had a dynamic relationship with God. Hebrews 11 tells us that he was a man of faith. And because he was a man of faith, he, he obeyed God and he built an ark even when they hadn't experienced any flood up to that point. In fact, most believe, and I think this is accurate, that there hadn't even been rain at that point and there were no oceans. The oceans were under the earth. There were probably lakes and, and waterways, but uh, but not an ocean and, and certainly not rain. And yet Noah obeyed God. So the, the Genesis record tells us some very strong things about Noah's godly behavior, but it says nothing about him preaching. Now, why? Let me suggest to you that what Peter was talking about when he said that Noah was a preacher of righteousness was not that he went around verbally witnessing to others, though I would assume that he did that. I would assume that he, that he shared about the coming judgment, but I take it that what Peter is talking about, is this: during the 120 years it took Noah to build the ark, he was constantly by his life and by building that ark, proclaiming a message of judgment, what he was doing and how he was living was the message. That's how it was being proclaimed. Someone's put it this way. Every time his hammer hit a nail, he was sending out a message of God's coming judgment. His actions in building the ark was a constant announcement of judgment was coming. You need to repent or else you'll be swept away in the flood. Now, why does Peter tell us about about this, about his family being spared, about him being a preacher of righteousness? It's important to remember that Peter really had a twofold purpose in this section of scripture. Number one was to condemn the false teachers. And we've emphasized that, but also he had another purpose, and that was to encourage the true believers to encourage them. Keep in mind that in in his day, false teachers were growing in popularity. Peter's Christian uh, readers must have felt very insecure at this point, finding themselves in a minority. And by stating that, that Noah and his family, just eight people out of billions were preserved from the flood. Peter intended to encourage the believers with the fact that though the great day of judgment was coming, yet they will be kept safe. They will be kept safe, even though they're just a few and probably considered very insignificant in their society. As we said before, why? Because Christ had already been judged in the place of believers. And even though you think, well, wait a minute, when Noah lived, Jesus hadn't died. Yes, but we would put it this way. They were really saved as if on credit. They were saved on credit. That's how believers came to be be saved. By informing us that Noah was a preacher of righteous, why is Peter doing this? I think he intends to just encourage us to be faithful, to keep telling others about the Lord and living out the life, even if nobody else responds. Be faithful. I think there are several important applications that emerge from, from these truths. One is as believers in Christ, we do find ourselves in the minority. We are in the minority. You may not get that that sense uh, if you just hang around Christian people, but we really are in the minority, and that can be a little intimidating. Helpful, though, to keep in mind that that's always been the case, always been the case. Do you realize that? You don't need to turn there, but in Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is answering an accusation that God has, has cast away Israel permanently. God has rejected them. Why did people say that? Because they looked around in the early church and they saw very few Jewish believers, but they saw many Gentile believers and growing church of Gentile believers. And Paul points out to them, God has not cast away Israel. Understand this, in every generation, there's only been just a handful of believers, just a few. He calls them the remnants, the elect remnants. And folks, that's a wonderful truth to gain uh, gain a grip on that it's never been God's plan that, in, uh, there's always, that there's going to be a majority of believers in every generation. It's always been his plan that there'll be a minority. That's why he uses the example of Elijah and just the 7,000. The whole nation had turned to Baal, but Elijah and 7,000 others had followed the Lord. Just a small minority. That's always been the way it is. So don't, don't be intimidated by that. It's not anything new. It's this elect remnant that God has chosen to deliver from judgment. Now, in the meantime, though, while, uh, judgment has not come yet, in the meantime, we need to do what Noah did. And that's proclaim the truth about Christ to others by the way we live and, uh, and by the way we speak about him. Knowing what we do about the certainty of judgment, it compels us that the priority of our lives is to be, uh, have a good testimony for Christ and to tell others about him. Someday it will be over. This is our opportunity. This is all we have. Noah spoke up for the Lord and lived for the Lord, and I'm sure he was ridiculed and mocked for being so different from those around him. I mean, what a contrast. But, but think about this. This guy is building for 120 years. That's a long time to build anything. He's building a gigantic ocean liner on dry ground. Nobody's ever seen an ocean. Nobody's ever seen rain. And and I would I would assume that they, you know, called him things like nutty Noah and 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 laughed about him. But even though that took place, Noah continued proclaiming the truth. And you know what? No one but his family responded to his proclamation. Now think about that. When when you and I witness, and when you and I tell others about the Lord, and and nobody responds don't be overly discouraged. In fact, you don't need to be discouraged at all. You just need to be faithful. But have you ever wondered why no one responded to Noah's message? It's the same reason why very few respond to to our witness for Christ. And I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Matthew 24 because Jesus spoke about this. Jesus actually gave us the answer. Why so few respond? In Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about his second coming, about judgment coming. And he says this in verse 37, for the coming of the son of man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the son of man be. Jesus said that just prior to his return, conditions on the earth will be very similar to the days of Noah. People will be carrying on such activities as eating and drinking and getting married. Now, there are some Bible teachers who look at that and, and teach that that it's, it's wickedness that Jesus is talking about. I don't think that's what he's talking about. Though the days of Noah are very wicked, I think the point here is this. People will be carrying on their normal activities. There's nothing wicked about drinking and eating and getting married. It's business as usual without any consideration for God. I think that's Christ's point. In other words, there will be an apathy about the Lord, a disregard for him. He is considered irrelevant until it's too late, just like it was too late once the flood came and the horrors of people trying to beat on the door as, as the waters rose higher and higher and it was too late. Bible says that God shut the door. It'll be too late then. See, the reason that that most people don't respond to the gospel, your witness and mine, is that just as in Noah's day, they're interested in doing their own thing without God. They're living a life apart from God. Most people are not overtly hostile towards the Lord, but it just comes out in ignoring him, in neglecting him, in living a life independent of him. It's a life of growing up, having as much fun as you can, getting married, raising a family, going to work, growing old. It's just life apart from God. That's the way it is. It's apathy. But someday it'll all be over. Someday it'll all be over because judgment will come and then they will regret that they didn't listen to those who told them about salvation. So keep being faithful because God does have an elect out there. God does have a remnant. We don't know who they are and we're to proclaim the gospel to all. So keep being faithful. So what have we seen so far? Two lessons. Number one is if the ancient world wasn't spared from judgment, then neither will anyone today who rebels against God. Secondly, if God spared Noah and his family, then he'll save all those who trust him for salvation, though we be few in number. There is a third lesson from the judgment of the flood. And it's this, if God punished the ungodly of the ancient world, he will certainly punish the ungodly in every age. Notice the last phrase of 2 Peter 2, 5. The emphasis here seems to be upon the word ungodly. He says, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Peter closes his thoughts about Noah and judgment by telling us that God destroyed the world with a universal flood, but not just the world. It was a world described as ungodly. The whole world was ungodly, except Noah and his family. Ungodly. It was a world that deserved judgment, absolutely. And you and I deserve judgment. The only reason that we can ever escape judgment is because there is an ark for us, just like there was for Noah. It's the ark of Jesus Christ. We ought to flee to him. The ancient world was a wicked world, a wicked world. They deserve judgment. How wicked were they? We won't take the time now to study this, but on your own, you ought to look up Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Paul describes the wicked world of of the ancient civilizations. It was not a world of of, uh, nobility. It was not a uh, a world of... uh, of, of honoring the Lord. It was a world that suppressed the truth. It was a world that, uh, that was darkened in their thinking about God. Their lack of gratitude led to a defiance. They stopped worshiping God. They started creating, uh, worship of, of images of animals and inanimate objects. It led to sexual perversion. It led to all kinds of, of wicked behavior. And they approved others who did this. They applauded them. It was a rebellious, civilization that deserved judgment. Our world deserves judgment, too. We deserve judgment. But will he ever send a universal flood like that again? And I want to just mention to you, it wasn't simply that it rained. When we study Genesis, I, I emphasize this. Back in those days, I told you there were no oceans on the earth. The oceans were under the crust of the earth, subterranean oceans, and they must have been very, very hot under the crust of the earth there was also, we believe, a canopy that was over the earth, and that also affected their aging process and so forth. But that's why it never rained. There was a, a, a moisture in the air, but never rained. When the floods came, the Bible says that the oceans of the deep opened up. So the very earth gushed forth, hot, hot water, and the sky opened up and poured forth. The canopy came down. It just poured on. It must have been very cold. So imagine your mind, the, the horrors of that, water coming. I mean, imagine the Atlantic Ocean, Pacific Ocean, all the others just erupting, that being suppressed and held under, and they, they burst forth now, and then the sky opened up. I, I can't imagine the hideousness of that, the horror of people when they realized that Noah was right. Noah was right. Will God ever do this again? Let's look at Second Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 3 know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Peter says they're going to mock the second coming of Christ. They're going to say that God is never going to break into history, never going to do it. But Peter says in verse five, for when they maintain this, it it escapes their notice. They're, They're obviously oblivious to this great fact that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. It says, if they think that, that Christ isn't going to break into human history and judge us, they are sadly mistaken because God once did that with the flood. Will he do it again? Verse 7, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, Kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. He will never judge the world again by a universal flood. There there may be local floods, and there are, but never a universal flood, but this world will be judged by fire. By fire. In fact, that's what the rainbow is about. The rainbow is God's sign to us that he will never judge the world again by a flood, but by fire. It is coming. And though people may mock God's judgment just as they did in in Noah's Day, a universal judgment is still coming by fire so what should we do what should we do if we know that god's judgment of sin is inevitable you know what do what noah did flee to the ark for safety flee to jesus christ he is the only way of salvation because sin has been dealt with by him no other way take refuge in him by trusting him as your savior from sin the judgment is certain but there is salvation available let's bow for prayer As we are quiet in the Lord's presence, I want you to think about two things. Number one, if you're not a believer in Christ, I urge you to come to Jesus today and flee from the wrath to come. You may not have tomorrow. You could die today. You need to come to Christ. He died for your sins. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But if you are a believer, then I, I want to encourage you. You need to be grateful for the salvation you have. Thank God that you'll never be judged for your sin. There's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. And I want to encourage you to be faithful. Be like Noah. No matter what you're up against, maybe you're mocked even in your family by fellow workers, by others, ridiculed. It's difficult to stand alone, but the Lord will give you grace. And in the end, you'll be vindicated. I give you a moment of silence to speak to the Lord, and I'll close in prayer and we'll receive our new members. Father, I pray that you'll use your word to draw people to Christ. Lord, it's a sobering thought to think about judgment, but it's a wonderful thought to think about salvation. I pray you'll encourage those who know you to be faithful, Lord, to realize that they have escaped the judgment only by the grace of God, that, Lord, we deserve hell. We deserve judgment. We deserve to be in that compartment with the angels. We deserve the flood. We deserve fire. But we praise you that one has been judged in our place. And though the world laughs now and thinks we're out of step with the times, yet Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your character never changes. You are holy. You demand justice. You are loving, and you provided salvation. Lord, draw to yourself those who need you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
1: Amen. Amen. I'm thankful every day that Jesus took the judgment that I deserve. And I hope you can say the same. You've been listening to Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, is our teacher. And I'm your announcer, Jerry Peterson. Find out more about Verse by Verse or listen to previous broadcasts at our website, versebyverseradio.org. Our time is nearly gone for today, so I'll just take a moment to invite you to join us for our next Verse by Verse as Pastor Steve continues our journey through 2 Peter chapter 2. You know, it seems lately that good Bible teaching in many of our churches has been replaced with entertainment and name-it-claim-it preaching. In our next class, we'll try to get-